0: Hello, oh, and thanks for listening to Salis University's Health Science Starts Here podcast. Today, we're wrapping up our two part Seeing Eye Dog special with a look into the field of orientation and mobility, which is one of our programs within the Department of Blindness and Low Vision Studies, or what we call BLVS. So, I had the opportunity to sit in on an interview with the director of our OM program, Jamie Maffitt, so she could educate us on what it means to be an OM specialist.
1: Hi. Hello. Um, I'm Jamie Maffett, and I am the director of the Orientation and Mobility Program here at Salis University in the Department of Blindness and Low Vision Studies. I also serve as a low vision therapist and orientation and mobility specialist at the William Feinbloom Vision Rehabilitation Center at the Eye Institute as well.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for being here today.
1: Um, I think we'll
0: start with the most simple questions first. Um, What is orientation and mobility? Can you give us a little background on that?
1: It seems like a simple question, but it's actually quite a complex um, answer. So orientation and mobility instruction is individualized instruction for individuals with visual impairments. And it's goal-specific for meeting their needs for independent travel. Um, That can include uh, instruction on the use of remaining senses, uh, hearing, sense of touch, functional vision. can include concept development, orientation skills, problem-solving skills, and then mobility skills and techniques, uh, perhaps with a long cane or supporting the use of travel with a dog guide. Um, In addition, uh, with the advances in technology, we now see more and more electronic travel aids, um, and uh, learning how to incorporate those into our instruction as well is part of orientation and mobility. So basically, uh, an O&M instructor can work with a student with visual impairment. It could be a child, could be an infant, could be an adult, um, and it could include goals in terms of safe movement within their classroom, their home, or perhaps accessing public transportation to travel to and from work or school.
0: Can you please describe the differences between methods and skills used by blind and visually impaired individuals to orient themselves in the world? Um, For instance, like a guide dog versus the white
1: cane? So you bring up um, a good question about the differences in orientation and mobility. So a dog guide or a long cane are used uh, for mobility skills. So how to uh, safely navigate uh, around obstacles, detect drop-offs, avoid um, overhanging uh, branches and such. Orientation skills are a whole other set of skills in terms of knowing where you are, knowing where you're going, and using different systems to be able to, um, with intention, uh, travel to your desired destination. So um, in terms of orientation skills, there's a whole set of skills that can be uh, using uh, cardinal directions and learning how to use those efficiently. I mean, how many of us use those uh, in our daily lives? Believe it or not, they are helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Or uh, understanding address systems and learning how to navigate based on location of addresses in residential or business environments. And then you have the mobility skills and techniques and... Uh, the mobility system, which would be the dog guide or the long cane.
0: Wonderful. Um, Also, piggybacking on that, um, I think we'll go right into um, what to be eligible for a
1: dog guide. Can you guide us through that uh, process? Typically, um, each dog guide school, and there are many different schools across the country, they have different requirements for accepting students. Um, Some include age. Uh, You have to be uh, uh, at an age where you can take on the responsibility of caring for an animal. Um, Some include um, your visual, uh, your functional vision. Um, Some dog guide schools are more stringent about the level of vision uh, that their students have uh, to be paired with a dog guide. Um, And then as well as your independent travel prior to being placed and learning how to travel with a dog guide. Typically, a student um, has already gone through the orientation and mobility instruction provided by an O&M instructor uh, and needs a sponsorship or um, at least their instructor needs to submit some information based on their independent travel to be eligible for a dog guide. Um, Because as you can imagine, traveling with a service animal, there uh, can be some things that are unexpected. Uh, Perhaps the dog is sick or the dog ages to a point where they're not able to uh, travel. Uh, The person still needs to be able to get to where they need to go, so they will have to rely on their other travel skills, perhaps using a long cane. So to be eligible for um, a dog guide really does depend on the different schools' uh, entrance requirements and acceptance requirements, but also the person's independent travel prior to being placed with a dog guide. Because a dog really is a helpful mobility system, but the, the person uh, being paired with the dog guide is the person in charge of the travel. A dog isn't going to tell you when to cross the street. The person has to be able to tell them when to cross the street. A dog does have what they call intelligent disobedience so if the person traveling with the dog guide um, says it's time to cross and it's an inappropriate time perhaps there's a quiet car there like a hybrid car the dog will prevent the person from crossing Mm -hmm. um, which would be the intelligent disobedience that the dog guide is trained to do Um, but the person still needs to have their orientation skills set um, as well as the other techniques and strategies for travel to be able to travel with a dog guide
0: that makes sense. Thank you. In what ways do comms work with service animals? I think we already kind of t- touched on that, but just in case, we should ask again.
1: So orientation and mobility specialists, as I uh, um, said before, work with the student to prepare them to have the skills necessary to travel with a dog guide. Um, Once they're paired with a dog guide, the student may return home and need supports for travel. This typically takes the place of orientation. Um, When they're paired with their dog guide at their respective dog guide school, they work with um, an instructor on how to travel safely with the dog. So an orientation and mobility specialist doesn't teach a student how to travel safely with a dog guide, rather once they return after learning those skills, we provide the supportive services to travel in the environment with the dog guide. So perhaps they're going to college and they need an orientation to where the cafeteria is or where their classes are for that semester. The O&M instructor will provide the orientation and route travel to the space. Um, and the the person or the student will travel with the dog guide.
0: Oh, great. I didn't think about that.
1: And then kind of back-traveling
0: a little bit, uh, how long have you been with SALAS, and also what
1: made you want to become um, a comms? I started with SALAS, I guess I was hired on here in 2011, Um, And I started as a faculty member and coordinator of the program. Uh, And in 20, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I was promoted to director of the program. Um, But I, full disclosure, went through Salis' orientation and mobility program when it was the Pennsylvania College of Optometry. So I was a graduate of our program. I went and I worked within, uh, in the Philadelphia area, area with the Bureau of Blindness and Visual Services. Um, and then was recruited to come back um, as a faculty member here at Salis. First of all, I never wanted to be a teacher. Uh, When I was a kid, I said that's the last thing I wanted to do, and in fact, I thought I was going to be a a human rights lawyer. Mm. Um, Life happens, and here I ended up uh, being a teacher. So I moved to Philadelphia in 2001. I can't believe it's been that long. or maybe 2002. I don't know. Things get blurry, but and I started working in adult education, and I worked and coordinated a high school diploma program here in Philadelphia, and I loved it. I loved everything about it except um, the stability in employment, um, as opportunities for um, adults to uh, pursue. Um, their high school diploma were not necessarily a priority within our Department of Education. So I had looked at different options because I loved teaching adults, and I loved working uh, with adults on very applicable life skills, and I liked working in small groups. I did a year of AmeriCorps service after I graduated from college, and I knew I did not want to work in a classroom (laughs) uh, full-time. So knowing that, having that valuable experience, and then uh, working with adults with um, applicable life skills here in Philadelphia, I um, was interested in pursuing orientation and mobility. Now, many folks don't know about orientation and mobility, and that's one of the challenges of our field, is um, not only to recruit professionals, but also to provide services for those that need our services. Um, My father is totally blind. So I knew about orientation and mobility, I could say, my entire life. Mm-hmm. I've been a guide my as probably since I could walk. Um, and my father uh, was a vocational rehab counselor um, and administrator. Uh, so he was very much aware of the systems for providing supports for individuals with disabilities. And I think he was the one that said, maybe you should look at O&M. And I did a a search while I was in Philadelphia, and lo and behold, there was a program right outside of Philadelphia. And so that's how I came to go through the program um, and become an orientation and mobility specialist. And I can say um, I'm very pleased that I did that. I love teaching O&M, whether it's to graduate students in our program or uh, to individuals at the I-Institute. It's it's a, a... a profession in that you teach something that somebody really is going to use on a daily basis to complete um, whatever it is that they need to do, whether that's go up and down stairs safely, cross streets safely, go grocery shopping, whatever uh, their personal goal is. Great. Oh, a very
0: important one. How have O&M practices been incorporated into public spaces, like accessible pedestrian signals, um, and how do they affect your teaching
1: methods? As the world is our classroom, uh, we work within whatever environment our student needs to navigate. And as technology improves, we have to respond to those changes within the environments and how they're placed. So some challenges that our students encounter on a regular basis, um, as we see... uh, as over time we've seen more and more volume of traffic our students need to be able to travel and anor- analyze intersections safely and uh, efficiently uh, with in among an environment that has more ambient noise than it has say you know in previous decades okay um, as the noise level increases it makes it harder to pick up on those quieter more well uh, uh, well-tuned cars, okay, for crossing streets. So just if you can think about the ambient noise in an environment and then being able to localize on sounds you need to for your safe and independent travel, that can be a challenge. our students encounter more complex intersections. And here at SALAS, we have one course that really delves and digs deep into how to teach these intersections for our students so they can navigate them safely. Um, These are the intersections that you may notice. um, You travel to, particularly in more suburban areas, where during the day, um, the traffic light uh, is set to respond to the volume of traffic. So it might have a different amount of time for a green or a red light at that intersection uh, during the day versus, or at night time, versus rush hour. Okay, and these types of intersections are called actuated intersections. And what that means for our students is if, a, if there's no traffic um, on one particular leg of the street, the light may never change or it might be a shorter time allowed for them to cross the street, which has implications for safety. Um, You may also notice there's more and more roundabouts being placed in um, areas, suburban areas, uh, rural, uh, not necessarily rural. Well, no, they are more in rural areas too, and urban areas. And those are really, uh, from a traffic engineer's perspective, the intention is to keep traffic moving, not necessarily to provide... um, really safe and efficient options for pedestrians to navigate. Um, You may see um, uh, accessible pedestrian signals at intersections and when done well these provide access to the information necessary to cross the street safely and independently regardless of your level of vision or hearing impairment. Uh, there's a type of APS uh, system out there that uh, someone who has deafblind can actually use to cross the street safely and um, efficiently. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can you please explain what APS is? Uh, they're audible pedestrian signals. Okay, thank you. Um, some of the more basic ones that you may hear are the chirping at intersections. Okay. Um, those are not the most effective. They can be helpful, but they're not the most effective. Um, the more advanced provide audible as well as tactual feedback to the traveler so that they know uh, when it's time to cross the street uh, and which street uh, the feedback is being given for. Because at an intersection with the chirping, you, unless you're familiarized to the intersection, you might not be sure about which chirp means what at an intersection in right. terms of uh, when it's time to cross. Um, also with advances in GPS and smartphone Technology O and M instructors really need to be able to incorporate this um, to support students travel not only for orientation purposes. I mean, how many of us pull out a map anymore to get anywhere? We really just plug it into GPS, right. and now there is um, more and more accessible GPS options for students with visual and travelers with visual impairments. So another thing that you might see are um, those bumps at the blended corners when you go to cross the street. I've heard various things from people's ideas about uh, what they are for preventing people from slipping into the street, um, But the, which I'm not sure if it would do that or not, but the <laughs> intent of those bumps, or they're called truncated domes, is to provide an alert system for the person with a visual impairment to know that they're about to step into a, a place where they may encounter vehicles. So back um, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was um, enacted, they, there was some legislation regarding uh, putting in blended curbs so travelers, uh, wheelchair travelers, um, or travelers who use wheelchairs, uh, could safely cross streets and get back up onto the sidewalk. Well, the more blended a curb is, the less likely it is for a student with a visual impairment or a traveler with a visual impairment to detect the difference between the sidewalk and the street, an easy fix is to put in those truncated domes, <clears throat> excuse me, or those bumps that alert uh, the traveler that they can detect with the cane um, in advance of walking in the street, or um, in the case of traveling with a dog guide, um, provide uh, tactual feedback underneath their feet as well. Wonderful And
0: now I learned something well, I learned a lot of things new today. Um, I think that's, that's a good, that's a wrap. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. My name is Alyssa Nguyen, and this is Health Science Starts Here. Check back every other week for new episodes and listen everywhere podcasts are available. To learn more about any of the topics we talked about today, visit salas.edu podcast.